Luke chapter 1. We continue our Christmas series, our Advent series through the Gospel of Luke, this introduction to the birth of Jesus in Luke chapter 1 and 2. We simply entitle it, Hope is Born. Christmas is about hope. It's about the Lord doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Now, the question that we must wrestle with every year is, when does Christmas start? When do you begin to celebrate? What starts the clock for you? Maybe for you, it's when you put up your Christmas tree. That's the tradition in your home. You have a certain time where you pull down the decorations. And, and for you, that begins the Christmas season. Or, or maybe it's uh, when you watch your favorite Christmas movie that comes on those channels over and over and over in loop. And after you've kind of sat through it one time, you, you feel festive again, right? Nothing more festive than National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, right? Like you, you feel good about it. Or, or maybe the Christmas story. But, but you start to begin to feel that way. For me, and probably for most of us, the true sign that we're in the Christmas season is the music changes. Our radio stations change. We change our playlist. We uh, move into a different section of all of the times of year, of all of the holidays. Christmas is single-handedly the, the biggest songbook of the seasons. And we know this because we begin to sing the songs. Now, every year for Thanksgiving, for the last probably six or seven years, my family travels to my brother's. It's the one time a year where we go up to his place in Spartanburg, South Carolina. It's about a five-hour trip unless Atlanta's acting like Atlanta. Then it becomes about a six-hour trip, which means it's usually a six-hour trip. And so the idea is, is that as we travel up before Thanksgiving, I have a hard and fast rule. There is to be no Christmas music until after Thanksgiving. Can I get an amen? amen. Some of y'all had to amen through your teeth, didn't you? It's like, oh, I don't know about that, right? I, I want to I wait. I want to wait because I, I don't want it to water down. I remember as a kid, we would have fifth Sunday night singing and it'd be in July and it'd be call out your favorite hymn. And sure enough, some kid would call out joy to the world and ruin Christmas in the middle of July. I don't want to ruin it. I want to keep it special. Now, the Friday after Thanksgiving, when we're traveling back, we jam Christmas music all the way home because now I'm ready. The music sets the tone for me. And there's music in Christmas everywhere. There are the silly songs like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. There are the funny classic songs. There are the ones that our culture has held on to for centuries like I'm Dreaming of a White Christmas or the Christmas song by Nat King Cole. We, we hear those and we immediately remember them and we sing along with them. But for people of faith, we have even more of a songbook when it comes to Christmas. We sing songs like Hark the Herald Angels Sing or Joy to the World or Silent Night or Oh Holy Night or Little Town of Bethlehem. We, we sing those songs and our heart is stirred. We are reminded of what God has done for us, that the God of all creation has entered into our world through the singing of songs. Our heart is put into the festive spirit. Well, this morning in Luke chapter 1, verse 46 through 55, I submit to you probably what is recorded as the first Christmas song. The first song that puts the incarnation to lyric. The first song that in poetry tells us of the coming of Christ. It is the first recorded, if you will, New Testament birth announcement song. It is the song of Mary. It is her heart overflowing with the news that she carries now the Savior of the world, that God has visited her and brought to her this blessing of having to birth and bear 
the Messiah. And so she sings. She bursts into song. She's overwhelmed with the joy of the Lord at Christmas, the first Christmas, and she sings. Let us look together at the words of Mary. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is His name. And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with His arm, and He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich He has sent away empty. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to the fathers, to Abraham, and to His offsprings forever. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for Mary's song. We thank You, Lord, that she has given us the pattern of the incarnation that when we hear of Jesus coming, we are to sing. We are to be people who shout for joy because the God of all creation has come for us. Oh, Lord, may we see in Mary's song today just how hope abounds in Christ. Lord, may we be kindled again in our heart the Christmas spirit, the spirit of hope that rests on Christ. Lord, I pray through Mary's song you would teach us today of hope. You would show us of where we look to you and you alone for hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this song has been studied by the church for many centuries. Uh, it is one of the most famous Christmas songs in the Scripture. We should not be surprised when we find out that Mary, this young Jewish girl who has been uh, given the, the calling to carry the Messiah in her womb before she's even married her husband, we should not be surprised that she busts into song. Now, I realize that when you hear good news, you may not grab a pen and start writing poetry. I realize that when you get excited about something, you may not start putting together the lyrical trappings that would become Scripture. I, I get that this may be foreign to us, but it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be foreign to us that we find that a young Jewish girl who hears good news from God starts singing. The reason why it shouldn't be foreign to us is for two reasons. One, Mary grew up a Jewish girl, which means she went to the temple and the synagogue on a regular basis. She was schooled in the temple. Her classroom was not like ours, where we would go somewhere separately than the church. She would be schooled in the church. She would learn music class by singing the Psalms. She would learn geography by studying the maps of Moses and David. She would learn the parts of literature by reading of the narratives and the poetry and the stories of God. All of her education would come from studying the Bible. For her, it would be the Old Testament. She would study it from beginning to end as she grew in her academic knowledge. She would also study it as a faithful Jew who loved the Lord. We know that she loved the Lord. We know that she was faithful because the Lord has told her through the, Gabriel Israel, through the angel Gabriel that she has been found favor in God's eyes, that she is right with the Lord. So get this now. We have a young Jewish girl who her whole life has been studying the Old Testament. Her whole life 
life has been reading the Psalms and the songs. Her whole life is understanding about singing the Bible. Her whole life would have been dedicated to the idea of what David would tell us in Psalm 42. As the deer pants for water, so my soul longs for you. Or Psalm 62 that says, sing to the Lord all ye earth. Maybe, maybe she would have heard Paul later who would preach in Ephesians, sing to one another songs of hymns and encouragement. She understood that we are singing people. Do you know that in the Bible there are over 150 songs recorded? We have songs in the Bible. We sing together. So Mary busts into song. Now before we dive into her song, can I just offer you a challenge? As you read Mary's song, you will surely see that it is entrenched, it is soaked, it is overwhelmed with biblical language. It sounds like a poet from the Old Testament. From generation to generation, you'll call me blessed. But Father Abraham, you remembered your promises. You have scattered the proud. You have lifted up the humble. That sounds like something David would write in the Old Testament. That sounds like something Moses would have said to God in prayer on the mountain. That sounds like a declaration of the prophets when he would say, the pride will fall. It sounds like Mary is copywriting and or cheating off the Bible when she writes her song. Can I give you a word of encouragement? Brothers and sisters, let it be said of us that when we get good news of the Lord, when we get good news from the Lord, when we have reason to celebrate, may it be said of us that Scripture comes flowing out of our mouth. May it be said of us that we always have a song to sing because the Lord has picked us up from the mire and placed a song in our mouth. May it be said of us that we are so saturated with God's Word that no one ever has to say, well, I don't know what to say or I don't know how to respond. May they always say, I have a word fit for this moment because they've studied the Word of the Lord. Mary had a song to sing because she had the Word in her heart. She had the Word in her heart. Now, what I want to do this morning is I want you to see how Mary's song, saturated with Scripture, gives us hope. How this song gives us hope, how we find hope in the song of Mary. And in fact, we'll find it in three particular truths this morning. Number one, Mary's song or Mary sings of our personal hope in God. She points us to a personal hope in God, a realistic, individual, personal hope in God, that you and me and Mary and Joseph and anyone else who would come to this babe that she will birth, anyone who comes to Jesus can have hope in God. Look with me at the beginning of the text, starting in verse 46. This is what she writes. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Now notice with me first how Mary begins her song. She says, my soul and my spirit rejoices in the Lord. Now we don't need to parse those two words. She's not describing two different parts of her nature. She's just simply piling on words to say me, myself, and I. All of me, all of my strength, all of my thoughts, all of my heart's affection, everything I can muster up is praising the Lord. I am giving worship to the Lord. Notice what she says. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. Now that's an interesting phrase to me. I was a kid with a magnifying glass. I know how to burn an ant in a yard. I understand how they work. And the question is, the magnifying glass makes the object in the glass larger. Doesn't it seem silly for Mary to think she can make God bigger? 
Doesn't it seem silly for us to think we can somehow enlarge God? We cannot enlarge God. We can't even grasp how large He is in and to Himself. How can we, feeble humans, broken humans, enlarge God? But notice what she says. She says simply this, My soul magnifies the Lord. Here's the secret. Mary is not claiming that somehow she's making God bigger. Mary is claiming that God is making Himself bigger to her. Mary is understanding that when she's come to the knowledge of Christ, the promise of the Savior, she's accepted the words of Gabriel, the ambassador from God, she's declared that God has done something good, and she's grasped the promise of God, then all of a sudden God gets bigger to her eyes. All of a sudden, God gets larger to her heart. All of a sudden, God is bigger than she could have ever imagined. Brothers and sisters, isn't it good to know that every day of our life, as we pursue the Lord Jesus Christ, as we study, as we sing, as we comb over the famous words of Scripture and the songs we've sung over and over and over, isn't marvelous to know that every time we come to God, we learn a little more. We see a little more clearer. And isn't it marvelous to know that as we learn more and see more, God just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger in our eyes. Isn't it good to know that you will search after God and you will never find the end and that makes the pursuit that much more marvelous, that much more wonderful. I heard a man say one time that the gospel is like swimming in a pool and it's like swimming in the ocean. He said this way, basically this, that the gospel is so simple and so small and so wonderful that the smallest child can wade into it. But it is so deep and so rich that the great theologian will never find the bottom. God is that big. He's that marvelous. Mary says, my soul sings because I've seen another shade of God and it just keeps getting better and better. I was recently reading a book on the attributes of God and one of the things the author points out is that when we begin to explore one another, we find bones in our closets that we don't like. The more we get to know one another, the more we find the things that we've kept hidden from one another. And in fact, we all can attest to this in family relationships and in marriage and, and in our relationship in the church. The more we're around each other, the more we realize that we all have problems that we try to suppress and hide and keep down. But the glorious truth of God is the more closets we open of His, there is not bones in those closets, there's beauty. There is not sadness and sorrow and scary things the more we search God. It just keeps getting better and better and better. And Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. It's good to see the Lord in all of His glory. It's good to see His mercy and His weight. She is singing of the Lord. David would do this in Psalm 108.1. He simply says these words, My heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing and make melody with all of my being. With everything I've got, I will worship you because you are marvelous. We can hear Mary singing this. Her soul is magnifying. He is altogether lovely. He is altogether wonderful. She is singing to the Lord. She is enlarging the Lord in her own eyes because she is trusting Him and following Him. But why would Mary sing like this? Look with me at verse 47. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Mary busts into song because she realizes that God is saving her. 
God is rescuing her. God is redeeming her. That the promised Messiah who will come and deliver the people is being carried in her womb. And she begins to sing because God has decided to save her. What a wonderful truth for us this morning. That brothers and sisters, if you know that the Lord Jesus has saved you, then you should be a singing person. You should be a singing people. Why? Because the Lord has changed us. He's redeemed us. He's rescued us. He has saved us. And not because we deserved it, not because we had any merit that we warranted it, but simply because He loves us. He loves us. I'm often enamored by people in church who will say, well, preacher, you don't want to hear me sing. Brother, I may not want to hear you sing, but God is calling you to. God is commanding you to. Sing to the Lord, for He is good. He has saved us. He has redeemed us. Mary says, my soul's been saved. How can I keep this song quiet? How can I swallow my tongue when the Lord has saved me? Notice what else she says, verse 48. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. She says, I'm singing to the Lord because I'm a nobody from nowhere and the God of all creation who's everywhere saw me. He loves me. He cares for me. Can you think about that for a moment? We are nobodies from nowhere in the grand scheme of things, and yet the God who knows everyone and is everywhere cares about us, loves us, personally invades in our life. And so Mary says, He knows me. I'm singing. Look with me at verse 48. For He is the mighty has done great things. It is His hand that has saved her. It is His hand that has restored her. It is His hand that has made this womb grow, this holy child. And notice what He says in verse 50. And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. Do you realize Mary's song just became ours? Mary's song just became yours and my song. Mary says, because the Lord is our Savior, because He's seen us in our humble state, our broken state, our lost state, because we are so far from Him and He has sent His Son to save us and redeem us, and now God's promises are being magnified in front of our eyes, and yet now we can be saved. And Mary sings a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago, excuse me, Mary sings of the God who will save generations upon generations upon generations. And I know Mary wasn't thinking about me, but she sure was singing about me. Because I'm in that line of generation upon generation upon generation that this child she carries will save. This child will redeem. Mary reminds us that the hope of the song is personal. It's beautiful. It's for you and for me. Jesus has come in order to save us. Every generation, from one to the next to the next. You notice that text there from generation to generation, to generation. In my family, we often joke about inheritance because my family ain't going to leave us none. And we joke about my dad and my mom. And, you know, you see people with those bumper stickers where they say, I'm living my kid's inheritance. I'm spending my kid's inheritance. I'm, I'm running out of inheritance. You know, we don't necessarily have, in, in my family, generation upon generation upon generation of finances, right? We, we got generation upon generation of debt. Thanks, mom and dad. But we don't have... I'm kidding, by the way. We don't have that, that kind of thing. And so we don't really understand this idea of passing down, passing down, passing down. Sure, sure, when, 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 my, uh, when the Lord calls my family in front of me home, uh, you know, we, we'll go pick through the house. I'll find a shotgun I won't. That'll count for something, right? But, but we don't know about this idea. Of pa- I better get off this topic, doesn't it? It sounds a little morbid. We don't know about this idea of generation upon generation upon generation. But, but notice what Mary says. She says, for generation... 
upon generation. Do you realize that the Lord's saving mercy through Christ Jesus is never depleted? It never runs out. There's never going to be a point where you say, "Uh uh-oh, we're one grandchild too many, we're past the gospel. Uh Uh-oh, we're one nation too far. We better not take the gospel that far because it's it's going to deplete God's mercy and His grace. We never have to say we're one church member too many because if we get one more, we're going to lose the grace of God. He's only got so much to give. That's not what it says. It says from generation to generation, from everlasting to everlasting, for every mouth that will sing, God will hear them. He is a merciful God and His mercy knows no And I'm thankful Mary sang about generations upon generations because Mary decided to insert me right in the middle of that song. She put me right in the middle of that song. And if you're here this morning and you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are in the middle of Luke chapter 1, verse 46 through 55. Generation upon generation are saved because of the Lord. This is why Mary sings. It is personal to her. I often hear people say, man, you need a little Christmas spirit, or boy, you're being a Scrooge, or man, you need to get in the holiday mode. Listen to me, brothers and sisters. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you should never have to be convinced to get in the Christmas spirit. For you are saved from generation to generation by a God who decided to magnify himself in front of you, enlarges himself in your sight, that you might be saved. Mary sings of a personal hope in the Lord Jesus. Secondly, I want you to see that Mary sings of a prophetic hope in the Lord Jesus. She starts to tell us what her child will do, what Jesus will carry out. She begins to tell us in prophecy what will happen. She's predicting with reality and truth and certainty what will happen. Look with me at verse 51 through 53. He has shown strength in his arm. He has scattered the proud in his thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their uh, thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Now I want you to notice something here that's kind of odd. She writes about the future in past tense. Notice with me what she does just so you'll see it. He has... He has shown, he has scattered, he has brought down, he has filled the hunger, the hungry, excuse me. She's writing about the future in past tense. The way the Greek is formed, it would be uh, equivalent to what the Old Testament prophets would do in Hebrew, where they would speak of God's future act as a certain thing, so certain you can talk about it in past tense events. So she's writing in what we call a Greek aorist past tense verb, which means it is present certainty. Now I know that's a lot of verbiage for me to simply say in this, Mary is so sure about the baby she's carrying and what he will do, she's already writing it down as history, as fact. Now I would agree with Mary, why? Because the God she's carrying is the same God of yesterday, today, and forever, so it's fact. It's true. So Mary begins to tell us what Jesus will do. She begins to tell us about her son that she's carrying. She says, here's what the Savior is going to accomplish. And he's going to accomplish it in such certainty that you can write it down and put it in the bank. You can be sure about this. In fact, she writes in past tense because she's so certain. But because Mary knows the Bible, 
She's drawing from the scripture of the God of the past. The verbiage sounds like something we would hear from Moses or David. We understand that she's writing about the future, about a God who's already acted in the past, and she's certain he will do it through Christ. And so she begins to tell us of what he will do. Notice with me three things that Jesus will do. This is prophetic of Jesus' ministry. What will he do? Number one, verse 51, he will scatter the proud. Look at verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Now, what does this mean? It simply means that the religious pious will be broken. Those who think they have it all together, those who think they can rescue themselves, those who puff out their chest and believe that they are somehow right with God because of their own righteousness, those who think they can keep the law, those who think that somehow church membership or baptism or tithing will somehow get them into the kingdom of God, living more moral than their neighbor, will somehow make them right. In their own thoughts, they've determined themselves to be right with God. And he says, Jesus will crush them. He will scatter them in their pride. He will remind them that the only righteousness that will stand before God is perfect righteousness. That we are to be holy because He is holy. And the only way one becomes holy and perfect in righteousness is to come to Jesus Christ, the Holy One. And so He will say to us that the ministry of Jesus will be to crush those who pridefully think they have it all together. Have you ever thought you had it all together and it fell apart in front of you? Boy, that's a humbling situation, isn't it? And you got everything figured out, you got it all working the way you want it, and all of a sudden it all crumbles in front of you. It reminds us of just how broken we are, how fallen we are, how in need we are of a Savior outside of ourselves. And so he simply says, the proud will be scattered. Think about it this way. We think about it in the sense of the prophets of Baal from the Old Testament. They believed they were right. They gathered up on the mountain and they decided that they would worship God. They would worship the God Baal. They would bring in their uh, offerings. They would burn their fires. They would cut their arms. They would think with themselves pridefully, we know we're right. And then the prophet Elijah steps on the mountain of Carmel and he says, let me show you the real God. And the Bible says that he prayed to the Lord. And in fact, in part of his prayer, he said, Lord, just show these people who you really are. That's a, that's a Corey paraphrase, by the way, but it would sound something like, Lord, let loose so they'll know it widen their eyes, magnify their view of you, that they may see who you are. And the Bible records that fire flew from heaven and consumed the altar and the water and all the people fell on their knees to worship him. And God sent after the prophets of Baal and slew them on that mountain. Why? Because prideful worship, prideful people, folks who don't believe they need the Lord, will be scattered. This is the gospel, by the way. The gospel is, come to me, all you are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But the same gospel of Jesus Christ says that though you workers of iniquity, you sinners who carry this burden, you who think you are righteous, for I came for the sick, not the doctor, not the healed, not the righteous one. This is the gospel. That Jesus has come for the brokenhearted. In fact, he would say the same thing in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Mary says, I'm praying in hope because God will scatter all of those that are false. Can I give you just a modern application? I'll be glad when the Lord shuts Benny Hinn up. I'll be glad when he throws the prosperity gospel in the pits of the hell where it came from. 
I'll be glad when he takes the morality person who believes that their name is on a church roll so they're right with God, but they've never darkened the door, they've never communed with God, they've never prayed, they've never been transformed. I'll be glad when God shakes them and sets it right that though you put your hand to the pile and look back, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. I'll be glad when he makes it right. That's what he says. Jesus will come and make it right for those who have twisted the religion of self-righteousness. Number two, this prophetic prayer. Look with me at verse 52. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. Not only in this prophetic work of Jesus will He bring down the religiously proud, He will bring down the socially and politically strong. He will crush those who think they're in charge. He will crush those who think they're the ones that rule the day. He will bring down the mighty and their forces. He will bend their bows and break their chariots. He will show them that they are not worthy to carry His sword. He will crush the religious prideful. He will crush the politically prideful. He will do, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, He will make every knee bow and every tongue confess that He is Lord. He will bring total victory through His power. Like Pharaoh who thought he could whoop him. Like Goliath who thought he had a bigger sword. Like Nebuchadnezzar who believed he was right. God will bring them down. This is good for you and me. Especially since we live in the most free country in the world that takes pride in selecting our leaders. And we have been thrown in constant chaos over the social media and news world of today. We are reminded through this text something very clear. And let me give it to you for just a moment, just to ease your pain. America will fall. Every nation will fall. Why? Because there is but one king. There is one king, brothers and sisters. Do not put all of your hope in political parties and things that sit on this earth. Do not put all of your hope in who is the king or the bishop or the governor or the mayor. Place your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because there is coming a day, as Mary prophetically saying, He will come and crush all those leaders anyway. He will bring us hope. Brothers and sisters, my hope is in the Son of God who will bring down the mighty. This is what He's called us to. The baby that Mary carries will totally flip society. It will totally change everything. The servant will be made the center of attention. The proud will be cast out to the side. The humble will be elevated. The prideful will be broken. The ladder to success will be flipped upside down, for the servant will become the master. Ye who are last will be first. The one who washes the feet will be welcomed in. Jesus is flipping everything. And Mary says there's hope in that. There's hope in that. Let me show you one other prophetic part of this prayer. Look at verse 53. He has filled the hungry with good things. Now he's talking about the spiritual world. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Not only will the Lord Jesus Christ break the proud and bring down the powerful, He will lift up the poor. It will fill those who are in need. Oftentimes in Scripture, the writers will put together the physical need with the spiritual need as an object lesson. Jesus would do this when He spoke to the woman at the well. He would say to her, if you drink from My well, you'll never thirst again. He was not speaking of physical thirst. He was speaking of spiritual thirst. He looks at the crowd and He says, if you eat of this bread, My body, if you eat of Me, you will never go hungry again. He's not speaking of our physical meal. He's talking of 
the spiritual meal. The Bible tells us of this idea of putting the physical and the spiritual in the same sentence so that we understand. We hear this in David's Psalm, Psalm 42, as the deer pants for water, so my soul longs after you. This idea of being thirsty for the Lord. One of the most famous characters in the New Testament that comes across our Lord Jesus is the rich young ruler. He comes to Jesus with riches. He comes to Jesus with wealth. He comes to Jesus with morality and religion. And he stands before Jesus and he says, Teacher, Rabbi, what must I do to be saved? How can I be right with God? How can I know I'm on the right track? And Jesus says to him, The commandments, honor your father and mother, uh, worship the Lord, keep the commandments, if you will. And the man in all of his pride, knowing that he had not done this, but he had done it better than anyone else around him, says, I've done all that. I'm a good Jewish boy. I've kept the rules, I've kept the law, I never got in trouble, the teachers never called me out, I never had to sit in the corner, they never moved my clip in kindergarten, I'm doing good. And then Jesus says, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And the Bible says the rich young ruler turned and walked away sad, for he was very, very rich. You know the problem with the rich young ruler, it wasn't that he was rich, it's that he was hungry for the wrong thing. It wasn't that he had money, it was that all of his heart and soul desire was that he was hungry for something other than Jesus. And Mary says in her prophetic song of hope, those who are hungry for Jesus will be filled. Their bellies will be full. Their hearts will be restored. When we hunger and thirst for Jesus, we will be filled. It's a fountain that never runs dry. It is a meal that never goes away. It is the goodness of the Lord that meets us where we are, sustains us where we're at, and carries us on to glory. We will never grow hungry. In that same Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, I gave it to you, I'll give it to you again. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied, filled. Mary says, here's the prophetic hope we have in this baby that I'm carrying. He will crush those who are wrong. He will bring down those who are over you, and he will lift the poor. Do you know why this prophetic part of her song is good for us? Let me make the application before we see the last truth. And that's simply this. Brothers and sisters, do you know what Mary is singing about when she sings about this babe in her womb? She's singing about setting the record straight. She's singing about the fact that evil will not get the last word. She's singing about the fact that death will not be victorious. She's singing about the fact that cancer and hospice and divorce and miscarriages will not be the end of the story. She's singing about the fact that Jesus will come and He will crush those that were evil and He will lift those that are with Him and He will make it right. That's the hope of the Christmas song, that God has come to make it right. She will close finally with a promise. She will sing of a promise. She will tell us of a beautiful truth that we find in the last two verses. Our promise of hope in God. Listen to what she says in verse 54 and 55. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy. He has spoke to His fathers, to Abraham, to His offsprings forever. You hear her giving us a history lesson, right? Oh God, you remembered. You remembered the promise you gave Abraham that you will bless this nation and through it all nations will be blessed. You remembered the promise you told Jacob 
You remember how you recited it to Isaac. You, you remember how the prophets proclaimed it. You promised in Isaiah that one will be born. A shoot out of the stump of David will come. You promised. You promised that the virgin will give birth. You promised that by his wounds we will be healed. God, you have promised. You have promised. You have promised. And what does she say? And by your mercy you have remembered. You have done what you said you will do. You have brought the Savior into the world. Your offsprings will now be forever blessed. You have fulfilled your promise. Salvation is the Lord's. He has come. He has come to save us, to redeem us, to rescue us. You ever had a promise broken? Sure you have. We all have. We've had promises broken and they hurt us. They harm us. Some are silly promises like I'll do the dishes before I go to work. It's a little personal issue. I'm working out of my home. Some are more serious promises. Like till death do us part, yet they're broken. When promises are broken, they hurt. But Mary says our God never breaks a promise. Mary says the baby she carries in her womb declares to us the hope that we have God's promise and He will never break it. He has promised to save the nation of Israel. He has promised to rescue the children of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He has promised to bring the king that will sit on David's throne forever. He has promised. And Mary declares, you have remembered in your mercy. Now you might say to yourself, well, pastor, that sounds really good if I was Jewish. Let me read to you for just a moment Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, where Paul reminds us that in Christ we're all Jewish. He says, and if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And this means when Mary starts to sing her Jewish history lesson there in verses 54 and 55, she doesn't know it yet, but she's singing a history lesson for you and for me. She's singing a history lesson that through Jesus Christ we will be brought into the promises of Abraham and we will be saved by his wounds and by his stripes we will be healed. And those of us that are Gentiles outside the family of Abraham, we will be grafted into the family and all the goodness of God will be given to us. Why? Because God keeps his promises. He never breaks them. So she says, you have remembered me. This is the gospel. The gospel is that Mary brought Jesus into the world by the miraculous work of God. The gospel is this young Jewish girl sings the word of God while carrying the word of God. The gospel is that Jesus Christ came and was born of, of a virgin. He knew no sin. He carried no sin, yet he let himself be born under the law. He lived a sinless life, a perfect life, one that never broke a single commandment of God, and yet he was treated as a sinner. The Bible says in Galatians that the curse was laid on his shoulders. My sin, your sin, laid on his shoulders, that he would go to the cross and die a sinner, though he did not deserve to be there. That the wrath of God would be poured out on him. That the very judgment you and I deserve would be given to him. That he would scream from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then he would yell his final breath, it is finished and he would drop his head and they would lay his body in a cold tomb that he did not deserve on a slab that was not meant for him in a tomb that was not supposed to be his but he would lay there for you and for me he would lay there because he is the promised Messiah that Mary sings about 
He would lay there because you and I need rescuing. He would lay there because you and I need saving. He would lay there because a great exchange would take place. All of my unrighteousness would be laid on His shoulders and all of His righteousness given to me so that when He rises from that grave, when He comes out of that tomb, when the earth shakes and the stone is rolled away, He will declare to the nations, there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. There is hope. There is hope in the baby that Mary carries. Would you pray with me, Father? We rejoice today that you have remembered your promises. And you have sent your Son. And as Mary sings out this first Christmas song, we are reminded there is hope. There is hope for us personally. We get to know you. We get to say personally, my soul, my spirit worships you. And you take nobodies from nowhere and you lift them up. There is hope because the baby that Mary carried will finish the plan of God. He will set right all that is wrong. There is hope. Because you remembered your promise and you have saved your people. Brothers and sisters, your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing. We're going to respond to God's Word through song. I pray now more than ever, you will sing. You will be a singing people, a people who understand that God has saved us, that He picked us up from the mire and placed us on the rock and put a song in our mouth that we would sing. Oh, brother and sister, this morning maybe you need to come to this altar and just confess your sin and say, Lord, I'm, I'm sorry, I've lost the Christmas spirit. I've forgotten that you are the God of hope who's changed me. Maybe you want to come this morning and say, I, I want to live like the Lord Jesus is my Savior. I want people to know it. Maybe this morning you just need to be saved. You need to be grafted into the family of Abraham through Jesus Christ. Would you come to Mary's baby? Would you come to the Savior of the world? Oh God, help us to magnify you and be full of hope. Bless us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us this morning? You come if the Lord leads.